Welcome to the 1505 Club. I was asked to talk about the Gonstead approach to both vaccines and autism. You're obviously trying to get me in trouble here, but that's okay, I'll play along. This is a bit of a tricky subject because we have no formal opinion or stance in this regard. So let me just say at the outset that this is purely the result of my own research and findings and does not reflect the views of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society since I never even bothered to ask them. What we do have is scientific research and the Gonstead way of thinking, and that's what I want to focus on. So without any further ado, let's dive in to a Gonstead approach to vaccine and autism. I'd like to approach this in a way that I would call the Gonstead way. So let's reverse engineer this process by first discussing autism. Obviously, there isn't nearly enough time to talk about vaccines in their entirety by discussing them individually as they deserve. Instead, I'll discuss the mechanics of vaccination, particularly as it relates to autism. First, let's talk about autism. What is it? Even before the recent epidemic of autism, which has reached rates as high as one out of every 32 in some parts of the U.S., we still had autism, even if it was rare. We need to look at those cases and ask, where did these cases come from? Autism is, at its core, mitochondrial disease. More to the point, it's an energy problem. It's a problem of cells that barely have enough energy to function, and the consequences of existing in just such a state. One way that we know this is because when kids with autism die, rigor mortis sets in almost immediately. What is the significance of that? you might ask. Well, if you need to do something like reset your internet router, you would unplug it and then wait 30 seconds for all the residual energy to dissipate from the system before you plug it back in. In the body, when we die, there is still residual energy in the system, and that has to dissipate before rigor mortis begins. The fact that rigor mortis sets in almost immediately is a clear indication that the cells are barely producing more energy than they need to survive. This also leads to a dysfunctional state where the cells do not communicate with each other as well as they should. Researchers are now looking at the hibernation physiology of bears to see how they enter and exit from hibernation. Autism is, in essence, a state of cellular hibernation, and the researchers are looking for clues on how this process might be reversed. If autism is a dysfunction of the mitochondria, then the only possible solution is to address the mitochondria. So the real question for us is, can chiropractic help the mitochondria to function better? I've looked through the research, and I can't find any known mechanism by which the nervous system controls the mitochondria. However, there is a ton of evidence that the mitochondria control the nervous system, so to speak. Mitochondrial dysfunction leads to nervous system disruption, particularly of the eye, heart, liver, and kidneys. According to the Cochrane Collaboration, a review of nine potential treatments for mitochondrial disease determined that none of them were of any reliable benefit. Obviously, this is a terrible situation, and it helps to explain why we've reached such epidemic levels. Nobody really understands the mechanism by which mitochondrial disease is created, although we do know it is environmentally created and not inherited. We also have no idea how to repair the mitochondria and reverse the condition. One thing that I've heard of as a form of treatment is deuterium-depleted water. If you remember your chemistry, Deuterium is still water, or H2O, 
but it carries a neutron in addition to its proton, and it's actually written as D2O or something, or sometimes just D. It sounds like a Star Wars character to me. Anyway, it turns out that a lot of our drinking water is actually D2O, and this acts like a sludge that messes up our cells, particularly the mitochondrial ability to create energy. The theory says that drinking deuterium-depleted water will help to clear out the deuterium that is accumulated and it will cause the mitochondria to become more efficient and produce more energy. Deuterium-depleted water has actually been studied a fair amount, but mostly in regard to its ability to prevent and reverse cancer, particularly lung cancer. These studies have found that the benefit of deuterium-depleted water is that it protects the nervous system. In other words, the deuterium-depleted water is probably not creating any change at the mitochondrial level, but it's probably protecting or preserving the nervous system from the effects of mitochondrial dysfunction, leading to the observed physical changes in those who suffer with autism, but observe improvement with deuterium-depleted water. All in all, I would recommend deuterium-depleted water to anyone with symptoms of autism. However, there's one little caveat. The only place I could find to buy it was on Amazon, and it was extremely expensive, as in, it was more than $50 for two average-sized bottles. I think that would probably be the biggest deterrent. At the same time, the case reports I've read of people who have tried this therapy have taken kids in special classes with known autism and improved them to the point that they re-enter the regular class and perform on par with their classmates while remaining free of all medication. In my mind, it's certainly worth a try, in spite of the cost, and it comes with no known side effects. Now I know the question that most young docs want to know is, is this a sympathetic problem or a parasympathetic problem? It was theorized, and we now have research evidence, that people with autism experience hyperactivation of the sympathetic nervous system. This originally led to the idea that we need to reduce sympathetic output, but there's now evidence that this hyperactivation of the sympathetics is actually due to suppression of the parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for conservation of energy within the cell. So I would tell you this. I believe the vast majority of people with autism will see the greatest benefit by improving the parasympathetics. However, some will require that you address the sympathetics instead, and others will require that you address both, but at different times, of course. So while this, while this might not seem very helpful, look for the subluxation and make a determination based on what you find, not on any preconceived idea or recipe of what should be wrong. When working with autistic children, the most important thing to remember is the need to build rapport. They don't know who you are, but you need them to trust you. I find that after, after the first adjustment, these children are some of the quickest to pick up on the fact that you're helping them, and they begin to trust you consequently. It's that first adjustment that might be difficult, and you don't want to push them too far and actually hurt your chances of getting them to trust you. That's the most important thing to remember. Shifting gears just a little, we also recognize that autism involves gut disease. We can't talk about that without also talking about Andrew Wakefield, so let's do both at the same time. I'm always surprised when I see the things that people say about Andrew Wakefield on social media, but then again, that's social media, so I probably shouldn't be surprised that so few people really know the story. But of course, that doesn't keep them from expressing their opinion. Nonetheless, let's begin at the beginning, since that's always the best place to begin. Now I sound like Mary Poppins. Andrew Wakefield first had the idea of looking for novel gut disease in children with autism based on a simple observation. At that time, 
people in England would still, on occasion, acquire both the measles and the mumps naturally. Sometimes this would happen in close proximity to one another. It was known to GI doctors, of which he was regarded as the leading GI doctor in England at that time, that when people naturally acquired the two diseases in close proximity to one another, it would lead to a unique form of gut disease. When he heard that people with autism often complain of gut problems, he began to wonder, could the live vaccine lead to the same gut issue since the two vaccines are given at the same time? For people who can separate from their bias, it's pretty easy to figure out that this is an important question that needs to be answered. Regardless of the answer, we need to know if this is happening or not. Where Andrew Wakefield ran into trouble was when he tried to get IRB, Institutional Review Board, approval to do colonoscopies on these kids with autism. The parents were okay with it, but the IRB said it was unjustified because he wasn't going to find anything. His mistake was that he decided to proceed without IRB approval, believing that his decision would be justified once he found what he knew he was going to find. Of course it wasn't, and the article was retracted because no journal can print research that goes against IRB approval. The accusation that he falsified research to achieve a false result is bogus. His exact study has now been duplicated at least 28 different times by multiple researchers, and his findings have been verified each time. If you've ever used the term gut-brain connection, you owe that term to Andrew Wakefield and his discovery. It's because of him that we now understand that there is a gut-brain connection, and that connection is the vagus nerve. So now we have to pull some polyvagal theory into the equation. One of the things that I've recently discovered, and I've been researching for my presentation at this year's Meeting of the Minds, is the ways in which the virus and bacteria in our guts use the vagus nerve to get from the gut to the brain, and they create dysautonomia, or dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system in the process. I'll talk more about that after I deliver my presentation. The point being that once I learned of viruses using the vagus nerve to gain access to the brain, I consequently learned about retroviruses. Now, I don't know how much you know about retroviruses, but I thought they were just like viruses, only from a different family. I was wrong. Retroviruses work their way into the DNA. There they often lie dormant, possibly even indefinitely. The one thing that seems to activate them is a strong immune response. Perhaps you've heard of Judy Mikovits due to her involvement in the Plandemic movie. As it turns out, she is one of the top authorities on retroviruses, and her research changed the course of treatment for HIV, the retrovirus she did her PhD dissertation on. Well, she initially found that bovine growth hormone given to cows to increase their milk production causes certain retroviruses to come to life, which was responsible for dramatically increasing the incidence of bovine leukemia, a problem that still plagues the dairy industry today. As she continued to chase down the retroviruses, she found that many of them were being spread by vaccination because they are difficult to filter out, especially if you're not looking for them. Dr. Mikovits has made the accusation that there are mouse retroviruses in vaccines and that these are the cause of chronic fatigue syndrome. Almost instantly, I saw that there were some, let's call them social media celebrity doctors, who criticized her and said that she is discredited and dismissed the mouse retrovirus theory as preposterous. So, I went to the research to see if I could find any evidence that either concept was true. I was actually surprised at how much research I found linking mouse retroviruses to chronic fatigue syndrome, and none of the studies I found were performed by Dr. Mikovits herself. My conclusion is that this is an area that certainly deserves further research, but the indemnification of the vaccine producers, 
certainly inhibits the process of ever getting that research. A few years ago, a researcher did a study on vaccines to find out if there was anything in there that wasn't supposed to be there. In order to properly conduct his test, he needed an appropriate placebo. He decided to use an equine vaccine from a veterinarian that he knew, and he would compare the two. He found the equine vaccine to be completely pure. The human vaccine, on the other hand, had DNA fragments, fetal cells, strange chemical compounds, and even fungus in it. He immediately called up the vaccine manufacturer and told them of his findings. He also said that if they would show him around their facility, he was pretty sure he could help them fix the problem. The vaccine manufacturer declined his offer and told him he should forget about it and his findings are irrelevant. He was surprised they would respond this way, but then he realized that since they are indemnified by the government, they cannot be sued, no matter what happens. Why would they want to spend even one penny cleaning up the vaccine when they won't be held responsible for what it does? The author jokingly suggested that everyone should go to their veterinarian to get their vaccine since animal vaccine manufacturers can be sued if your animal is harmed or killed by their product. It's no surprise then that Dr. Mikovits would find retrovirus in nearly every vaccine she tested. When it comes to vaccines, I have far more concern about the unintentional spread of retroviruses than I do about anything else. Despite that fact, there are other ingredients we must discuss, namely the adjuvants, mercury and aluminum. Obviously, mercury is a problem, especially when it crosses the blood-brain barrier and attaches to your brain tissue. In all honesty, I've always felt that aluminum is a bigger problem, so I found it somewhat odd or suspicious when celebrities started blaming mercury for causing autism, when the aluminum was far more implicated by the evidence. Nonetheless, mercury was blamed and then exonerated. But was it really? We have so-called experts, like Paul Offit, who not only claim that mercury and aluminum are harmless, but he's even suggested that they are, have nutrient value and that they are good for us. So consider this. The most common environmental pollutant is methylmercury. That's the form of mercury that's found in several different kinds of fish. It's a common byproduct of coal plants, so it tends to be found in high levels in areas with coal plants. We tell pregnant women that they should not eat too much fish for fear that they will ingest too much mercury. Research shows that when we ingest mercury, Almost none of it will actually be absorbed into the bloodstream. Almost all of it will simply pass through. Yet, this is enough of a concern to warn us against it. At the same time, they tell pregnant women that they should get a pertussis vaccine while pregnant to protect their children from whooping cough during the period of life when they are most vulnerable. According to the CDC, the pertussis vaccine does contain mercury, not as an added preservative, but as a remnant of the manufacturing process. This form of mercury is called ethylmercury. Initial studies on ethylmercury found that it only remained in the blood for a few hours instead of a few days, like methylmercury does. This led experts, like Paul Offit, to declare it was much less toxic and therefore perfectly safe to get in the vaccine as it couldn't cause any negative effects. One researcher was not so easily convinced. He asked the question, if the ethylmercury is leaving the bloodstream, then where is it going? The researcher's name was Burbacker, and his study is generally referred to as the Burbacker study. What he found was that ethylmercury was leaving the bloodstream so quickly because it had such a high affinity for brain tissue, and that's where it was going. He found that ethylmercury not only has a higher affinity for brain tissue than does methylmercury, but it's 50 times more toxic to brain tissue than methylmercury. In hindsight, it's pretty preposterous that we tell women to avoid ingesting methylmercury when very little of it will be absorbed in the first place, but then we tell them to inject ethylmercury directly into their bloodstream 
where almost all of it will find its way to their brain. It also makes you think that an expert like Paul Offit is either the most incompetent doctor of all times or he's just a pathological liar. These days, it seems a lot of our so-called experts are relegating themselves to one of these two categories, but I digress. Moving on to aluminum, we find a whole different problem. There's ample research evidence that aluminum creates permeability of the blood-brain barrier. In fact, this is so well known that aluminum is often added to certain medications for the purpose of creating a pathway of access for the medication to get to the brain. Unfortunately, it's not discriminatory, so it lets in a host of other things as well. Not only does this allow heavy metals like mercury to gain access to the brain, but it also allows other substances. One such substance is delta sleep-inducing peptide. This is a possible explanation for narcolepsy as a result of vaccine injury. Narcolepsy is a specific adverse reaction associated with the Hep B vaccine in particular. In fact, a little research on my part quickly revealed that narcolepsy is on the rise and it's growing most rapidly among teenagers. The timing is suspicious, to say the least. Besides increasing permeability of the blood-brain barrier, aluminum also has the effect of creating an immune response to anything that is introduced at the same time. This obviously has the benefit of creating an immune response to viruses in a vaccine since attenuated or killed viruses produce no response from the immune system. Without adding aluminum, vaccines would simply not exist. The catch is that the effect is not limited to the virus, but it includes other substances as well. The rise in allergies, including latex, peanuts, eggs, and many other substances, are linked to the timing of injecting aluminum, along with other materials that are involved in the manufacturing of vaccines, as in the aforementioned allergies. Speaking of which, the problem of creating an immune response with aluminum is that it produces a strictly B-cell response and inhibits the T-cells. In essence, this means that vaccines are not creating an immunity to viruses so much as they are creating an allergy to the virus. And that can look close enough to immunity to fool almost everybody. Pandemrix is a vaccine with an abnormally high occurrence of narcolepsy following injection. Pandemrix is an H1N1 vaccine that was only licensed and used in Europe. The narcolepsy was later associated with an adjuvant called ASO3 because they found the rate of narcolepsy dropped dramatically when the same vaccine was given without the ASO3 adjuvant. I looked up ASO3 to see what's in it, and at first glance, the list of ingredients seemed fairly benign. It contains squalene, which is a shark liver oil, alpha-tocopherol, alpha or vitamin E, and polysorbate 80. Polysorbate 80 is, now, is known to not only increase the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, but it also increases the permeability of the individual cells. Could this be the open door that leads to mitochondrial disease? Polysorbate 80 is also added to most commercial ice cream. Buyer beware. As I mentioned at the beginning, there is no way that we can adequately discuss vaccines without going through them each individually. So I am in no way intending for this to be a complete discussion on the topic. Instead, we've discussed general topics regarding most, if not all, vaccines, and we haven't even started on the topic of herd immunity and why vaccines can't achieve it. Instead, I think it all comes back to a philosophical problem. This, in and of itself, is a huge topic to take on. So let's just touch on the issue, and we can discuss conclusions at a later time. When I read the early writings of D.D. Palmer, it's clear that every premise he had was based on the idea that humans were created in perfection. Thus, the power that made the body heals the body. He saw medicine as the opposite of this, being that humans are the product of millions of years of evolution 
and evolution is an imperfect process resulting in many imperfections. This fundamental difference leads people to two very different conclusions regarding vaccines. If you see imperfect people who are vulnerable to disease because of their inborn imperfection, then the idea of vaccination makes a lot of sense, since technology and intelligence gives us the ability to hack the system and drive the adaptation. However, if we see the human body as a miracle of creation that exemplifies a knowledge and intelligence far beyond our understanding, then the need to trust that wisdom moves to the forefront, and our greatest contribution is to support this system with good food and nutrition, proper and appropriate exercise, and productive sleep. Each one of those topics is a lecture unto themselves, as they're all filled with pulp culture nonsense and fad concepts with little of real substance. So this question of vaccines and even autism is a philosophical question of what does it really mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? Where does life come from? These are the fundamental questions that separate chiropractic from all other healing professions. Our training says that the body needs no help, just no interference. As Gonstead chiropractors, that means we want to remove subluxations and give the body the opportunity to function at the highest state possible, regardless of how high or low that might actually be. We want to do it in a way that supports the nervous system. We want to be specific, and for people with autism, that often means adjusting the fewest number of segments possible. They tend to respond better that way. All medication has side effects, and vaccines are no different. Vaccines are a form of immunotherapy, and immunotherapy is often unpredictable from one individual to another. I believe that the interaction between viruses and chiropractic is the next great frontier we must investigate. Hopefully that will lead us to much more concrete and satisfying answers in regard to what we can offer to truly boost the immune system. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you found this helpful and that it will inspire you to begin your own investigation into the science of the immune system. As they say, knowledge is power, and knowledge of human function is the power to heal. I hope you have the best week possible, and I'll see you again next week. Thank <laughs> you.